and welcome to the 40th edition of the Traveling to Radio Show. I'm your host, Friedel. Today we're going to be talking about our upcoming bike tour in England, and we've got an interview with a twist. This time, someone's interviewing us. to the show, the 40th edition of the Traveling 2 podcast. It's hard to believe that we've recorded just that many podcasts and interviews over the years. And it's always wonderful when we get an email from someone who says that they're really enjoying the show. We enjoy doing it as well. I know we've been really bad at uh, getting episodes out lately, but I do have a few interviews stashed away in the archives and I'm hoping to get them out over the summer. So keep your ears tuned and hopefully I'll get organized and get them out to you before too long. Now, today's podcast is a bit of a different one because instead of someone being interviewed by us, we've got someone interviewing us. The way this came about is we got an email from Bethany and Dave a few months ago. They're two Americans and they're planning a bicycle trip, a big extended international trip. And like most people planning a huge expedition, they have a lot of questions about the logistics and the planning of a tour. And so they sent us an email and they said, hey, can we have a Skype chat? And I thought that was a great idea. We fixed a date and this interview is the result. Happily, Bethany and Dave didn't mind having it recorded. And I hope that some of you out there planning big bicycle trips will find it helpful. There's just one small note about this podcast as you're listening to it. It was recorded a few months ago before the troubles started in Syria. And you'll notice that we speak very highly of Syria as a wonderful place to go bicycle touring. We still believe that's true. Unfortunately, at the moment with what's happening there, it may not be the case just now, but we're really hopeful that in the coming months, things will settle down there and Syria will once again be a wonderful place to ride your bicycle. How definite was your route when you started? Not definite at all. Um, we had a, a kind of a vague plan to go east, okay. but we really didn't plan the route in any great detail. So more or less what we did all along the way is we get into a country and we kind of have a broad idea, like in between three and six months, we want to be in this place. And right now we're here. And then we get into a country and we just go and buy some maps and we'd sit down with them and look at the time we had and plan out what seemed interesting to us. In combination with that, we would, as we were getting close to a destination, we would go on to places like Lonely Planet's Thorn Tree Form, or maybe we pick up some guidebooks or we do some general Googling and figure out the routes that people were taking in the countries that were coming up ahead. But when we left, we didn't have a big map with a line on the map and saying, yeah, we're definitely going to ride this route because, well, partially, I don't know if we were that organized for that. <laughs> we only came up with the idea of getting on our bikes and doing a bicycle trip nine months before we left. And so that that nine months was more or less taken up with just buying the gear for a bicycle trip. <laughs> um, and we knew we kind of wanted to go east, but we didn't have any plans other than that. Yeah. And then uh, I think also part of the fun of a bicycle trip is being really flexible because sometimes you get somewhere and you think, oh, I really love this place and I want to stay here. Or you meet someone on the road and they say, oh, why don't you go to such and such a spot? And if you have a route all planned out beforehand, then you feel somehow bound to stick to that route. So, yeah, we just want it to be ultra flexible. So, yeah, I would say three to six months ahead of time, we kind of had a general idea that we want to go here 
And then as we get closer, we'd pick up maps and talk to people and use the Internet to research routes. But, um, yeah, it was all fairly fluid. Okay. So in relation to that, like with such, um, I guess, open-endedness, how did you do visas? What is the process for obtaining those? Well, I mean, Particularly while on the road. While on the road, yeah. First of all, it's going to vary for everyone because we all have different nationalities. So what's true for me is possibly not true for you. For example, Europe, we have European passports. So we didn't have to worry at all about visas for the first year. We were just hanging around Europe and we were traveling on our EU passport. So that wasn't even an issue for us. The second thing I was going to say is that in general with visas, you can't plan too far ahead anyway. I would say normally you can't plan more more than six months ahead because all sorts of things affect whether or not you can get a visa. So countries change their regulations, countries get in fights. <laughs> all these, what may be true now may not be true six months down the line. So I would say don't even worry about it until you're kind of six months away from a country and you know that you're definitely heading in that direction. And then on top of that, in a lot of cases, when you get a visa, it has to be used within three months. So I, I'm kind of of the uh -huh. mindset that if you're setting out on a two or three year tour, there's no use worrying about visas two years down the line because so much can happen. What I would say in terms of visas is that you start out on your trip and when you get somewhere between, let's say, six months before a country, you can start going on the Internet, calling the embassies, right. um, getting the situation at that time. And then once you make those calls, you get the information from them. You have an idea of where you can obtain it, your processing times. And then about four or three months before you get there, then you can actually make the applications. And in almost all cases, you can get it somewhere on the road. There are a few exceptions. For example, when we were traveling, Russia was only accepting applications from your home country. So you had to mail it from... Yeah, and it turns out to be quite expensive because then you have to go through a visa agency and they really charge you a lot of money for that, plus the FedEx fees or whatever company you use to courier passport back and forth. And So, yeah, there are a few funny exceptions like that, but in general, you can get your visa somewhere on the road before you get to the country that you want to go into, and it's usually not a problem. So it's just a case of waiting until you're within kind of three, four months riding of a country and then – Going online using the Lonely Planet Thorntree form is fantastic because there are always people there who have just been there or who are really familiar with the place. Sometimes they live there. Um, or calling up the embassies, checking out their websites, and just seeing what they say and go from there. So as far as calling up the embassy and seeing where they are, have a, I guess, a cell phone that was could be used anywhere in the world, or did you use local phones, or how did that? No, we didn't carry a cell phone. I probably would on our next trip because now pay phones are getting so hard to find in so much of the world. So sometimes not having a cell phone was a real hindrance, but mostly we just use Skype. You'll find as soon as you, uh, especially once you get out of Europe, but even in Europe, you can find internet cafes just about everywhere. Mm -hmm. Right. And you just go in and Skype, and then you don't need to worry about carrying a phone, and is it charged, and getting the SIM card for the local country, and all that stuff. Or very often, uh, it's easier just to go onto the embassy's website, rather than call them up and sit and wait on hold for 15 minutes or half an hour. <laughs> but yeah, Skype is more or less universally available in internet cafes, or even in places like North America, where you don't see so many internet cafes, you can always go into a local library and use Skype. Right. Sure. But you might want to carry a, a, a cell we're phone. We're thinking about you know, carrying Yeah, we're, we're thinking about it. The, there's a somewhat significant costs associated with that as well. <laughs> Do you know Tara and Tyler? Have you seen their website, goingslowly.com? Going I'm slowly. not. 
Yeah, um, check it out. They've got, well, first of all, they have just some beautiful photos and journals. They really have me kicking myself because we didn't put a lot of effort into photographing our journey. And now that I see their pictures, I really wish we had. But they also have a section, uh, I think it's goingslowly.com slash internet. You'll see it's one of the main tabs at the top of their site because Tyler works while they're cycling around the world. And so he has to have pretty constant internet and uh, phone access. And so they detail how they've done it in all the countries that they've been through. And it's really up to date because they've just been traveling for just over a year now. So it's quite recent. Uh, and it's definitely worth checking out. But a lot of times they were able, for example, in uh, a lot of Europe and I believe now Australia and New Zealand and maybe also North America, you can get uh, wireless access in McDonald's. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. And in other places, you can get SIM cards quite cheap or pay-as-you-go internet access quite cheap. So, uh, yeah, it's definitely worth checking out their site for that, uh, as well as the journals and the pictures. They've got quite a bit of information on it. And I think they tried a few mobile cell phone services, which turned out to be expensive and not very good. So you might want to check out the companies they used and maybe stay away from a couple of them. Yeah, but if it were me, I mean, I would just, I don't know what your options are in the States because we haven't lived in North America for so long. But um, here you can just buy a really cheap um, pay-as-you-go mobile phone and a $10 credit and you're away. And it doesn't have to be any more expensive than that. And then you go to the next country and you just get a different card. You can keep the phone, but you just get a card for the next country. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that may be the way to go instead of trying to get one that you can use everywhere. Yeah. One for each country. That's what I would do. I would just get a really cheap, very basic mobile phone. That way you don't care if you lose it or you drop it into a stream or something when you're (laughs) camping. And uh, just get a little card and change them as you go through the countries. How did you track, like, political climates in countries? Like, how did you stay up to date on current? A lot of that was Internet, but, like, what's specific sources because i mean we we're looking at especially like in parts of maybe africa or or even central and south america yeah, some of those climates are are changing i know y'all rapidly. didn't go through there right no we didn't but in general um i would say our sort of lifeline to the world that kept us from getting super disconnected um especially when we were traveling through areas where the language was one that we didn't understand so we couldn't read the newspapers we couldn't uh really watch tv and (laughs) understand the local news reports um we had a shortwave radio with us and we tuned into the bbc every night And we really, aside from keeping up on the political climate, it was great for that because they cover all the major international news. So if there's an earthquake or there's political unrest or some act of terrorism or something, you can be sure it's going to be on the BBC International World Service. But aside from that, they just had some really nice documentaries. And that was, it was just something to think about. You know, sometimes when you're on the bike, I think you can get a little bit disconnected from the world. And so that was just a nice way of keeping in touch with current events and themes going on around the world, as well as making sure that we weren't riding into a dangerous area. Um, aside from that, we, if we were going somewhere, we'd usually just quickly look up government advice on the websites. Uh, every government around the world has a, a site, usually from the foreign office, and they tell you whether they think a country is safe or not. Um, so we'd have a quick look at that. We tried not to take it too seriously, um, or maybe I should say treat it with a, a grain of salt. You know, sometimes it, the advice only applies to one very small area of the country, or sometimes we thought that they were being really overcautious. Uh, but that's a decision that you have to make. 
how seriously you take those travel warnings. Um, if it's they usually have different levels of travel warnings, and if it's one of the very higher levels, then you do also have to think about your travel insurance. Quite often, your travel insurance will be invalidated if you go through those areas. So even if you were to have a, a problem that was totally unrelated to whatever political things might be going on, your travel insurance would not come and bail you out of a tough situation. So that's something to be aware of. Um, yeah, So and we just talk to other people as well and see how they felt. You find when you get going on the road, you know, you meet other cyclists, you usually stop and have a chat. And if they're coming from the direction that you've been, then you stop. Oh, well, how did you find it? Did you feel safe? What was the situation there? And you get a lot of information just that way, just through contact with other people who've traveled that way. As far as food goes, did you do any kind of like nutritional supplements? No. <laughs> I don't know. Do you count chocolate bars as a nutritional supplement? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Um, no, no, we didn't. Um, well, no, actually, I lie. We had cod liver oil pills, uh, which we we felt helped our joints. Now, I don't look. I'm not a doctor. I can't say anything about medical research on that topic or anything. We just felt that it was good for us. Uh, so we did take cod liver oil pills when we could get them. They weren't available everywhere, but if we were in a country where they sold them at the pharmacy, then we'd pick them up and take one every day. Did you eat a lot of fruit and vegetables? Yes. Okay. A lot. I would say we were somewhere between 75 and 90% vegetarian on the road. Is, were you before? No, no. Um, it's partially a practical issue um, because you can't carry fresh meat and also meat is expensive. And in some countries, you may not be totally convinced of the quality of the meat. Um, so <laughs> carrots and onions and cabbage and whatever you can get from the local market just becomes the obvious thing to choose. Um, it's also cheaper. <laughs> were you hungry a lot? I mean, I know we're always going to be hungry. But, I mean, I've noticed when we go on shorter trips, if we go two or three days without meat, I notice. I can tell. Like, I'm like, okay, well, it's time for a meal with meat because I'm hungry. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe, and maybe it's your own personal body as well because we're all different. I can remember one time cycling through Montana, actually, and we were just coming over um, a pass that took us over the Continental Divide and coming down to Glacier National Park. And I can remember I had the biggest craving for an omelet coming down that hill. And, and we found that a lot on our trip, that our bodies would really tell us what they needed. Mm -hmm. And we always listened to that. So we cruised down that hill in the first little town we got to just at the entrance to Glacier National Park. I forget the name now. But anyway, that little town, <laughs> they had a little shop, and we went in and made the biggest omelet you've ever seen. <laughs> <That's good. laughs> I think we had about an eight-egg omelet between us with mushrooms and a little bit of ham and cheese. And I still remember how good it tasted, but my body was really craving it, you know. So you can definitely eat meat if you want to. You know, there's plenty of it available. It's just, and well, it's just hard. It is harder to... You, you have to plan farther ahead to... To do that, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you will, you'll find plenty of opportunities, I'm sure. If nothing else, it's a good excuse to stop in and get a hamburger in a local diner and treat yourself once in a while or something. <laughs> no, well, if you ate a lot of fruits and vegetables, because we were thinking about, like, vitamins and, um, I guess, making sure we got all the nutrients we needed. I, I don't think you'll have a problem. I mean, we never... There were very few places where we felt we were really um, struggling to find fruits and vegetables. And then it was usually only for a shorter amount of time. Mm -hmm. sure. So you'd know, for example, you're cycling through uh, Kyrgyzstan and you're going to go on this remote road that takes you up into the mountains for five days. 
um, then you know that, yeah, you're not going to find a market at the top of the mountain. So, <laughs> but, you know, you have lots of fruits and vegetables before you set out. The last town you get to, you stop and, you know, load up on that stuff. And then you cycle for four days without too much fruit and veg. And then you get down into the next town and you're able to buy it again. So, yeah, there might have been stretches of maybe up to a week max where we had very limited amounts of that and we really survived on things that were lasting a super long time or were very lightweight, like pasta, maybe a bag of carrots because they just never go bad. So we just, every night we'd have pasta and carrots, pasta and carrots and tomato sauce. You know, <laughs> um, But it was usually a defined duration and we knew that we would come down into a town with a market. Yeah, and then also the wonderful thing about cycling in the summer seasons and into the fall is you notice an awful lot of fruit trees by the side of the road and so you can just stop and collect your own fruit and that's fantastic as well. Okay, what is something, and this could be, Gear-wise, this could be location-wise, wide, wide open. Wide open. Something you didn't do that you wish you had done. Um, well, I think, I think okay, gear-wise, I think we would both agree that on our next trip we would take little stools to sit on or chairs. When we started out, we thought, oh, that's, you know, just extra weight, and we were buying a lot of other stuff anyway. We'd literally start it from scratch. We had nothing, so we had to buy absolutely everything, and we thought, oh, do we need, you know, one more thing? But I kind of miss those, and maybe it also depends on your age. I think if you're in your 20s, you cope with it a little better than when you get into your late 30s and early 40s as well. So now that we're getting, I mean, <laughs> I'm only 32, so it sounds a bit funny to say that, but I definitely notice around the campsite, I really like it if I have a chair to sit in. So I think on our next trip, we would take two chairs. Oh, and pillows. We just bought pillows recently and they are the best things ever. They're just fantastic. I can't believe you didn't take pillows. No, we spent, we spent three years just shoving clothes into our sleeping bag sacks, which was fine. I mean, we survived, you know, we certainly didn't have that many nights of bad sleep, but I must say the pillow has been a revelation in the last years. <laughs> oh yeah. We're taking pillows. That was, not, that was not up for question. Yeah. Okay. So what's something you did that you wish you hadn't done? The day we had to cycle into Istanbul. We had an awful lot of energy and we were excited at the idea of getting into Istanbul because it was, you know, one of the big milestones on our trip. It was kind of that cold crossing from Europe into Asia and this exotic city that we'd never been to before. And so we were really excited to get there. And we were also just feeling really good and we were cycling really well. And so I guess we were about 50k outside of the city. It was about three o'clock in the afternoon and we kind of thought, well... You know, do we start looking for a hotel in the town we're in now and go in tomorrow? Or do we just carry on and get into Istanbul for this evening? And because we were so excited to get to Istanbul and we were feeling good, we thought, yeah, we're just going to go for it. And it turned out to be kind of a silly decision because we didn't think about the light. It got dark at about 6.30. We also didn't account for the possibility that we might get lost going into a city, probably because it was our first really big city that we'd cycled into. Um, now we know that we very often get, you know, mixed up in cities or traffic gets bad or something happens and you can't cycle at the same pace as you might on a quieter road. So to cut a really long story short, we ended up in the dark somewhere in the suburbs of Istanbul. But when I say suburbs, I really mean the suburbs. I mean, we were nowhere near the center. We were just miles and miles and miles out. And we were in this 
totally strange place where no tourists ever go. No one seemed to speak English. You could just tell there were no hotels around. We went into a couple little shops and we'd say, hotel? And they'd say, oh, you know, 10 kilometers down this road. And all the only road going into the city was a major highway, which had no shoulders on it and which was totally crazy to cycle during the day, let alone at night. So that was not even an option. We were just thinking, wow, what, what are we going to do? It got really late. It got to about 9.30, 10 o'clock. We were absolutely exhausted. And we just we try, kept on trying all these different roads and we couldn't find any road that was leading us anywhere into the city or any in any way that we felt was a safe road to cycle and where we would actually survive. And we had thought, um, we really thought, okay, we're not going to find anywhere to sleep tonight. We'd asked so many people about a hotel. No one had come up with anything. We thought, well, we're going to have to go sleep outside the mosque because we thought, oh, if we're really stuck. Um, we'd heard that mosques were kind of a haven for travelers. Um, traditionally, they're there to offer a safe place to sleep for travelers. And we thought, well, if we have to sleep in this very strange suburb on the edge of Istanbul, the best place to sleep is just outside the mosque. And we were just about to wheel our bikes up to this mosque. And we were hoping maybe we'd find a caretaker and he'd let us sleep inside or something. And uh, all of a sudden, this fellow came out of nowhere and he said to me in German, he said, Sprechen Sie Deutsch? And I studied a little bit of German in university. And so I was able to respond to him a bit in German. And he had seen us on the sidewalk and it was so clear that we were never meant to be there because this was not a place that anyone except for local Turkish people ever went. And it turned out that he had worked in Germany and come back and started a factory and he owned a factory nearby and he said, you can sleep on the floor of my factory. So he really saved us that night. That was just such good luck that he saw us and came over and talked to us and, and offered. So we ended up sleeping on the floor of this workshop in between some cars and welding torches. <laughs> I don't know what else, but it was really safe because, you know, it was quite a big factory and they had a security man. And so we were happy. We were just happy that we had somewhere safe to sleep. And then the next day, we cycled into the city in the daylight, and he was able to give us some directions on roads. And it still took us about two hours to get into the city, so we're really a long way out. But the moral of that was that we realized what we should have done is, you know, stopped earlier in the day and not really pushed our luck and and just assumed that everything was going to go perfectly and push on in, that we should have been more realistic about where we were and what we were able to achieve that day rather than putting ourselves in that situation of covering a huge distance, you know, when it was going to get dark and we didn't really know where we were going. And just in general to, to just always stop and think, okay, is that really realistic? Am I going to get myself into more trouble than it's worth here? And not be in such a rush to get somewhere because you're on a really long trip. So you always have, you almost always have an extra day to spare. And there's no point putting yourself in that kind of a really dangerous situation. On the other hand, even though we did stupid things like that a few times, it did always seem to work out in some way. It was usually quite stressful getting to the point where it worked out. But it was amazing how many times we'd really be sitting there thinking, oh, no, now what are we going to do? And someone would show up out of the blue and save us. I just, I don't know. The universe was looking after us or something. That really did actually happen to us in Florida. We were riding down the... Uh the east coast of Florida last winter and we went into a city that we thought was going to have a campground and we yeah. thought this will be no problem it's a it's like a normal size it's a pretty big city mm-hmm. and so but it was there were no campgrounds and we kept checking in places so we started looking for a church because we thought maybe we can just camp just camp out there camp there and it was actually a Sunday so we thought maybe people will be leaving church and we can just ask if we can camp in the church parking lot or whatever. You know, we thought that would be a friendly place. And so we 
we were like stopping in grocery stores to ask for directions to churches because we had polluted that there were no campgrounds. Mm-hmm. So then we got these bogus directions to a church we're trying to follow and it wasn't working out. And this random couple saw us with all our gear riding along the road and we stopped looking at a map and they stopped us and they were like, Hey, can we help you? And we were like, well, we're looking for somewhere to camp. And they were like, how about camping at our Aww. place? So, <laughs> so we're like, okay. <laughs> So we ended up, they actually let us stay inside and gave us a hot shower and dinner. And it was like getting dark, you know, what do you, what do you, what were we going to do? Cause we, we have done, I guess stealth or we call it stealth camping when we just find a spot, but that really works better. Not in a yeah. city. <laughs> yeah. In <Yeah>. general. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Cause like I could see it in Istanbul, that would be tricky. Yeah. yeah. A little bit. Yeah, we did actually perhaps. scope out one park, but it just it looked really dodgy, you know. And we sort of thought, mm, this is the kind of place where people wander through late at night. And yeah, no, we weren't comfortable with it. So. What bikes did y'all have? You got custom built bikes, is that right? Would you say that was worth it? Yes and no. Um, I have two views on them. One, uh, well, the bikes themselves look. We love them. They're really, really nice bikes. They're built by a, a great guy in England, Robin Mather, and we were very, very happy with them, and they lasted us the whole trip with almost no problems. And, you know, what problems we did have were more or less due to the fact that we were riding them every day in such long distances. You know, it was the kind of stuff that you would expect generally over that duration of a trip. Um, so in terms of having a bike that was comfortable and reliable, absolutely. They were wonderful. Um, the only hesitation that I have um, about a bike like that is that it is very expensive, and that means you worry an awful lot about it. It, it kind of got, it got better as the trip went on. You know, after a year, I thought, well, if it gets stolen now, at least I got to ride it for a year. <laughs> <laughs> right. But then, of course, the other side is you get kind of attached to it. It then becomes almost like your baby, you know. So I found that sometimes I was very reluctant to go and see a place if I wasn't able to leave the bike inside a hotel room or somewhere where I felt very secure about it not being taken. And I often wondered, now I can't really say because we've we've never had cheaper touring bikes, whether it might have been nicer instead of spending $2,000 on a bike to spend maybe a thousand and not worry quite so much about it. Um, Because I think there are some very good touring bikes out there for $1,000 that will also take you a very long way. And, you know, we even met some really crazy characters going from Japan to Europe on bikes that I'm sure they bought from grandma in the market. (laughs) Right. (laughs) When you see some of these people out there, the distances they're doing on extremely cheap bikes that no one would ever recommend for touring, but they they do the distance just because they're determined to do it. You think, well how much do I really need a good bike, you know? Then again, it comes back to comfort. It comes back to something you can rely on. Um, I'm sure we had an awful lot fewer mechanical problems than those people who were trying to go across China on a bike that cost $100, you know? So it's a trade-off, but that's just something to think about, and you have to decide how you feel about it, really. We have friends who started bike touring in Bangkok, and they just went into the bike shops there. They're quite well stocked in Bangkok and bought a Trek as well and rode it back to Europe, you know, and they, and they had no problems um, with their bikes. And they were sort of 300 400 $500 bikes, something in that range, you know, quite basic. And they got a really long distance on them. So mm-hmm. I think, how long are you planning to be away for? About two years. Probably about two years. Maybe yeah. a little longer than two years. Yeah, I was just thinking, you know, for trips up to about a year, I would say, you know, something like your 
somewhere between your $500 and $1,000 bike is probably going to be just fine. And then after a year, that's when you start to notice the quality of the parts a little bit more, I think. Where where was your favorite place where you traveled? And that can be, you know. It's, it's going to be somewhere that's very hard for you to get into, I'm afraid. We loved Iran. We absolutely adored Iran. Okay. Yeah, that's probably going to be very difficult for us. Yeah. Okay. Got another one? <laughs> but actually, you know what? Um, countries are, are favorites for different reasons. We made a lot of really good friends in Iran. We just found the people to be extremely friendly and helpful, uh, just generally far more generous than we had ever imagined. Um, and in combination with the fact that, you know, there were some wonderful archaeological sites and other attractions there to go and see beautiful buildings and there are almost no tourists. So, so it's a wonderful place to go and just feel like you're really, you know, traveling on the edge, but surrounded by wonderful people. So yeah, Iran is great. Um, yeah, love Syria as well. And, and that is possible for you to get into no problem. And people would just love to have you there. It was really funny when we were traveling in Syria and Iran, because I know you come, when you come from North America, you kind of have this idea, or a lot of people do that, you know, is it safe for me to travel there? But when we were traveling there, what typically happens all over the Middle East, you'll notice this even in Turkey, is you'll sit down in a park or something for lunch. And of course, the local locals will notice you and they'll come over and talk to you because they're just curious, right? And they'll say, where are you from? And whenever this happened to us in Syria and Iran, they would say, oh, are you American? And we'd say, no, we're Canadian. And they'd say, oh, they were really disappointed <laughs> because they wanted to talk to Americans, you know? And whenever we met um, Americans who were traveling in Syria, well, they were just absolutely overwhelmed with interest and people just loved to talk to them, so... Yeah, I, I would say Syria is definitely a, a close second to Iran in terms of a wonderful place to travel, um, just for hospitality as much as anything. You've just you've never seen anything like it. In addition to all the wonderful history that's in those lands, and then on top of that, I would say we really enjoyed Central Asia for the landscapes. It's bloody hard work sometimes. <laughs> you know, the the some of the mountain passes in Kyrgyzstan are really high. Um, the bureaucracy to get in there is probably the toughest of any of the visas that you'll get. You'll get the visas, but it just takes a long time. It's expensive usually. It's you know a good hundred dollars per visa. Um, you have to set all your entry date, so it's it's really bureaucratic. It's full of red tape. Um, but once you get there, oh my gosh, the landscapes and the history and just fantastic. Where else? You know, there weren't too many places we didn't like. Like. Every, every, everywhere was great for a different reason. We went through Southeast Asia, and we loved the ease of that. After Central Asia, which was a little bit difficult, you know, Central Asia, the towns are spread further apart. The food is never spectacular. It's okay, but you eat a lot of cabbage, and you come out of there and think you're never going to want to look at a cabbage again in your life. And then you get to Southeast Asia, and you have these fantastic curries and... Yeah, all the sensations, it's hot, and you all the flowers, and yeah, it's just totally different. The lush jungle, and it's such a change if you've come through someplace like Central Asia or Mongolia. And it's very easy. You know, there's hotels everywhere, and it's cheap. Right, very uh, cheap. Yeah, so you can treat yourself, especially if you come from a more expensive country, and then you get to Thailand. You can... 
you can gorge, you know, you can just, yeah, go and have street food and fresh fruit and iced coffees and a hotel every night. And it's just like, oh, paradise. <laughs> I actually spent a summer in Thailand. So, yeah, the food is so cheap. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah, you can really eat well in Thailand. And it's a great place to get your bike fixed up as well if you've been traveling for a while by then. You know, they have some really good bike shops and you pay like, I don't know, 10 or $20 and they just totally overhaul your bike. We weren't too keen on Kazakhstan. Okay. Of the Central Asian countries, that was the one we weren't really fond of. We had a few problems with traffic in the cities there. We found the drivers were really terrible in Kazakhstan. And it was a little bit more expensive than some of the other Central Asian countries. Speaking of different countries what languages between the two of you do you speak you know we're not on a video chat so i can't show you our miming skills but let's just say i think one of the best things you could do to prepare for your trip is um think of some different things that you might want to say during your trip i don't know maybe maybe different foods or a flat tire or something like that and and have your friends around for a game of customized bicycle touring charades <laughs> that's a great idea I love it. Because that's what we learned to do really, really well. We just uh, mimed our way around the world. And you can mime anything. And we, you know, we would go into restaurants and and they'd hand us a menu and we'd be like, well, I don't know. I have no idea what's on this menu, right? I don't even know where the appetizers are or where the drinks are. I just have no clue. And so then one of two things would happen. Either we would indicate that we had no clue and they would take us into the kitchen and they would just start opening up pots and we could look in the pots and choose what we thought looked good. I don't think that would happen in the U.S. No, it, it will once you start, you know, working your way through some of these different countries. Or you also get to countries where there's a lot of street food, so you can just see. Um, or we would just start miming. So, you know, we can all do a chicken, right? You know, hands under your armpits <laughs> and bok, bok, bok. And, <laughs> and that's international. And it also makes, it cracks a smile. But yeah, you you can mime just about anything. So speaking of food, I'm, I'm now veering off of my list of questions, but I think we're drawing too close here. When you, did you ever end up with a um, parasite, virus, anything that made you very yeah, sick? Yeah, I wouldn't say it happened any more often than it does at home. I mean, we all get sick at home, right? We all get colds and the flu and whatever. Things happen. Um, so I don't think it happened more often than if we'd been at home. Occasionally, we just picked up, you know, the kind of things, like I just mentioned, colds, flu, just your routine illness. And when that happened, we, if there was the opportunity to take a hotel, then we would until whoever was sick felt better. Or we would just, you know, slow it right down. You know, we might, instead of doing uh, 80 or 100K a day, we might do 40 or 50, depending on how the person was feeling. You know, obviously, if if you've got the flu and you're throwing up, we weren't cycling at all. But if you just have like a bad head cold, then we would just take it easy and stop and make lots of cups of tea and that sort of thing. And then occasionally we did seem to pick up some sort of, yeah, food intolerance, I'll call it as a general word. I think deli belly is a, you know, a standard word for that. You're traveling through different areas and you get exposed to things you're not used to. And so it does a number on your digestive system. But normally it's just a, just a case of letting it pass. You know, <laughs> you just got to wait it out. Um, there was one time in Syria when Andrew just couldn't seem to shake it. It just usually after a couple of days you'd see it was getting better, and it was two or three days, and he was still running to the toilet every day. But luckily there, it's medications very cheap, and seeing a doctor is very cheap. So for twenty dollars, a doctor came to the hotel, gave him a shot, and and he was fine. You know that. 
helped almost immediately. So, yeah. So a couple times we were able to see doctors on the trip, just local doctors. And usually it was a case of paying somewhere between 20 and $50. And then they would just give us the medicine that we needed and that was it. Yeah. And, and we were very, well, we have, I would say in general, we have strong stomachs. Um, we've always seemed to, you know, tolerate spicy foods, different foods very well. Um, so that probably helped. And we didn't, I know that all the guidebooks say don't eat unpeeled, uh, fruits and vegetables or salads and don't put ice in your drinks and stuff. And we just thought we're going to be on such a long trip. We just can't do that all the time. So unless there was a really good reason for us to doubt the quality of something, um, we just ate it and drank it and very rarely had a problem. It's only once I can remember in Thailand, you'll see in um, when you go traveling through um, Southeast Asia, especially, you'll see they have two types of ice. There's the ice that comes from a factory, and you can tell because it's all uniform ice cubes. And then there are huge blocks of ice, literally blocks. For us, it's something that would have people would have had 100 years ago or something that get delivered on the backs of wagons to all the little roadside stands, and they set them on this huge grinder. And they, when you order some sort of iced treat, um, they literally grind the ice right there. And I think that's a little more prone to being um, bad ice. Maybe because it's sitting out or maybe the source it comes from, I'm not sure. But anyway, once Andrew had a sort of slushy from one of these street vendors that was with this hand ground ice, and within an hour he was sick. Uh, that was all the questions on our list. Yeah. Any additional advice? Oh, just do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you'll be fine. You know, you learn so much on the road. I really think that we're all a lot more resourceful than we believe that we are. You don't realize how resourceful you are until you're out there in the situation where you need to draw on your own intelligence and confidence and problem-solving skills. And then you discover that you're actually capable of all these things. And the other thing is, too, I mean, it's great to read other people's journals and talk to other people who've done it and get their advice. But the solution that's good for those people is not necessarily your solution. Just because it worked for Andrew and I does not mean that it works for you, you know. <laughs> for example, Tara and Tyler, um, the couple I was telling you about earlier, um, they read our pages on Southeast Asia where we said don't bring a tent because we genuinely, you know, we cycled all over Southeast Asia and used it twice. But even on those occasions, we could have found a hotel. They say they wish they had brought a tent. You have to kind of forge your own path, and that's half the fun, really. Hey, well, thanks for um, taking some time to chat with us. We appreciate yeah, thank it. Thank you so much. This is great. Thanks very much, Bethany and Dave, for a wonderful interview. I really enjoyed talking to you, and I think it'd be wonderful to talk to you again when you get back, and maybe you can share some of the tips and things that you learned as you took your bicycles around the world. Well, that's about it for this show, but I did just want to mention what we're doing this summer for bike tours. It's been a bit of a crazy summer for us, actually, because we've had to go back to Canada, and then we've had some other things going on, so we haven't gotten out on any long tours, but we're planning one at the end of July, and we're so excited about it. We're going to take the ferry from Hook of Holland up to Newcastle in northern England, and then we're going to spend about a week or 10 days cycling through Yorkshire before taking the ferry back to Holland from Hull. So those are our plans. We're, they're all kind of sketchy at the moment. We haven't actually picked a route, but we really want to get out and do some wonderful camping. Everyone keeps on telling us about the hills in Yorkshire and trying to put us off climbing any that are too steep. But actually, after living in Holland, we're kind of excited by the prospect of hills. So we're sort of tempted to look at the map and pick out all the steepest ones and do those. 
We'll see if uh, we regret that decision after we have to climb the first one. So those are our loose plans. And of course, we're going to do lots of bike touring around Holland. We're heading out this weekend to the east of Holland. And we're planning another weekend bike trip before July's out. And hopefully a couple in August as well. And then what we're really hoping to do is write a book about cycling in Holland. Because I think this must be one of the most wonderful places in the world to ride your bicycle. So that project's probably a good uh, six or eight months away, I would think. But uh, keep your eyes peeled for that in the long term and if you have any ideas about what you'd like to see in a bike touring guide to Holland then definitely drop us a line and let us know I'd love to hear what you have to say about that so that's it for the 40th edition of the Traveling 2 podcast thanks very much for listening in and have a great summer of cycling wherever you are you